This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Welcome to the World War II Radio Podcast. Today we have the story of the Battle of Midway, as it was broadcast over the Mutual Network. The Battle of Midway was fought between U.S. and Japanese forces from June 4th to June 7th, 1942, around the Midway Hole in the Pacific. It was one of the most consequential naval battles of World War II and a major victory for the Allies. Not sure of the exact date of this program, but it appears to be from the week after the battle, based on comments during the broadcast. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can also support the show by clicking on the link in the show notes and offering your financial support. Your donations help us to continue to produce the podcast, and thanks to those of you who have already donated. So thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At the sound of the V4 victory, the correct Eastern wartime, 2 o'clock. The WIP Special Events Department, in conjunction with the Coast to Coast Mutual Network, presents the exclusive story of the Battle of Midway Island. This broadcast by three captains of the United States Marines is presented as shortwave from Honolulu, Hawaii, and transcribed here from the Mutual Line. Aloha, fellow Americans. This is Owen Cunningham in Hawaii. From the Midway Islands have come three young officers of the United States Marine Corps ready to tell you of the valiant job done by that service, whose motto of Semper Fidelis never rang truer than during those hectic days last week. Two of them are aviators who were shot down in combat, but not until they had scored against the enemy. The third commanded an anti-aircraft battery. Now, history is waiting to be reported. You know the framework of this epic of Captain Buckner. You had the best close-aboard view of the Midway area during the Japanese bombing attack. Will you set the stage for us? As the Japs approached, we saw our fighters begin to engage them. Several enemy bombers went down in flames. About this time, we replenished ammunition, took a deep breath, and now we're ready again. It all began pretty early. Word was passed by telephone at 4 a.m., and those not already on station manned their stations. Mine was at the observation post of my anti-aircraft battery. It was still dark but we could hear the big bombers warming up. We waited. We'd been waiting for seven months, but this was the real McCoy. In about two hours, we got word that the Japs were on their way, advancing in three waves. 
They passed north of the island, swung around, and came in. The enemy had come within range of our anti-aircraft. All batteries went into action. Between our fighters and our guns, we had reduced the enemy bomber force to 20 planes by the time they hit Midway. After unloading their first bombs, the Japs changed tactics. They started dive-bombing both islands, peeling off and coming in steep. They seemed pretty methodical about it, but missed their main targets. Personnel casualties were light, too. We think our heavy ground fire was too hot for them. All in all, the attack lasted about a half hour. It didn't seem that long. It was like watching a six-ring circus through a keyhole. But finally, the Japs had had enough. They went out low, strafing a bit as they went, and rendezvoused out of gun range. Then, I guess, they lit out for those carriers that our flyers were attacking at that very moment. Meanwhile, our flyers were hitting the enemy. Let's hear from Captain Merrill. We got up long before dawn and went to work. We knew our heavy stuff, the bombers that were to have the sky cleared for their takeoff. So we went out to screen their departure and then skipped back to Midway for the next phase of the operation. Which was? Which was doing a bit of attacking ourselves. About dawn, word came in that our pilots out there had engaged the Jap. Off we went. We had just one order, to intercept their bombardment squadrons before they hit Midway. My division found them only ten miles out. And when I say found them, I'm putting it mildly. They were pretty well protected by fighters. I saw about 16 Jap bombers with fixed landing gear leaning straight for our base. They were the same kind that raided Pearl Harbor six months ago. I made one pass of the Jap squadron, and I sprayed a few bullets into them. Then suddenly I caught them from above and behind. At 8,000 feet, I lost partial control of my ship. On the way down, I was struck twice more, and the gasoline tank blew up in my face. When I saw I couldn't make the Midway Reef, I bailed out. I had heard that the Japs liked to strafe parachuters, so I didn't pull my ripcord for 3,000 feet. As they came down, I could see enemy bombs falling around the base. Lots of them missed. One whole row of high explosives made a sort of white dotted line along the beach. Then I was swimming. I had disengaged my chute and inflated my life jacket. And boy, the shore seemed a long way off. I finally made the reef and rested up for 10 or 15 minutes. Then the boat picked me up. Meanwhile, your comrades in the air were pushing home their attack, too. People like, like Captain Blaine here. I'm a dive bomber, Pilot Owen. Our assignment was to take off shortly after Herbie's fighters and hit the Jap carriers that launched the planes that our fighters were then engaging. It was just breaking into one of those clear midway mornings when we took off. We had all, almost 200 mile flight ahead of us, so we poured the coal to them. What sort of orders did your commanding officer give you, Captain Blaine? Concise ones. Intercept and destroy. We found our objective while passing above a fleecy patch of clouds at 8,000 feet. Through holes in this stuff, we caught a glimpse of the sweetest bunch of targets I'd ever imagined seeing. Three carriers strung out in a five-mile column, screened by cruisers and destroyers. Our squadron leader radioed our assignment, and I drew a keg attack carrier. One of the big babies. Had the enemy spotted you? Yes, indeed. We saw our fighters taking off and rising to meet us. Then their anti-aircraft opened up. It began to explode all around us, great puffs of it. We were tossed around like toy balloons, but weren't hit. We had to smack those carriers because they were bent on smacking midway. We peeled off in steep dives. I was well in the rear of the formation, so I got a bird's eye view. One of our bombers burst directly 
One of our bombs burst directly on the superstructure of the Jap carrier and rocketed it like a hobby horse. Several hit alongside and probably stole in their plates. Enemy planes on deck took a lacing too. Troy, this begins to sound like an episode in an old-time movie thriller, Captain. What next? With the carrier smoking behind us, we started for home. Three of our fighters of their fighters clung to our tail. I went down to 25 feet to escape any aircraft fire and shot from the jet destroyers. The fighters would make a stab at us, wheel overhead, and then serve comfort. A stray shot carried away part of my fuel line. I managed to start to keep the engine flowing, the gas flowing to the engine, by working the wobble pump. From then on, it was a nightmare. Pumping, controlling, watching, and praying. When I caught a glimpse of our wings, I added another word. They looked like Swiss cheese. Oh, boy. I judge your machine gunner was keeping occupied, eh, Captain? He was working like a fiend. Then he told me he had been hit twice. About this time, I became aware that my evasive tactics weren't shaking the zeros. So, above us, there was a white cloud, over a thousand feet up. Pumping gas like mad, I gave her the gun, and we made it. You did, eh? Swell. And you finally lost the enemy? Finally, none too soon. Either because I had pumped all the fuel out trying to stay aloft, as long as I did, or from some other trouble, the engine quit cold. So I made my first water landing. We looked like a ton of scrap metal. But the dive bomber took it nobly and floated long enough for the gunner to climb out and for us to free our two-man rubber boat, emergency rations, and some float lights. Captain, you, uh, you mentioned your gunner. Will you tell us who he is? I'm delighted to, Owen. He's Private First Class Gordon McFeely, United States Marine Corps, and a swell companion for a flight like that. Take it from me. He's 27 years old and comes from Youngsville, California. Right now, he's recovering from his wounds, which weren't serious, in the Naval Hospital at Pearl Harbor. Captain, uh, what happened after you got into the rubber boat? Well, our main source of satisfaction came from the fact that Jap strafers lay 100 miles behind us and midway only 60 ahead. We figured our patrols would find us. We drifted. Our little boat had a leak caused by a job bullet. So every 15 minutes, we had to give her 50 licks with the hand pump. We floated for two days and two nights pumping. And uh, how did your comrades finally pick you up? Twice we had bitter disappointment when patrol planes passed fairly near us, but missed. Then on the morning of the 6th, we saw a flying boat. I fired a last float light, which sent out a long column of smoke. Eight miles away, the plane swung around and glided back towards us. She looked heavy and was, because her fuel tanks were chock full. Her pilot made a magnific magnificent landing. We got on board. He made an even more brilliant takeoff. And that was that. So you just went home, eh, Captain? No, not quite. This particular plane was heading out on a, on a daily patrol. She couldn't go back till it was finished. So McFeely and I spent most of the day as observers, hunting the enemy again. Dick, in the final accounting, I hope that the fullest credit will go to such officers as Captain Cyril T. Samad, a splendid Navy flyer himself, and senior in command at Midway, and to Colonel Harold D. Shannon, whose Marine Defense Battalion put up the mighty barge that chased away the enemy, and also to Lieutenant Colonel Ira Kimes, commanding our Marine Air Group. Credit should go to the Army bottoming squadrons under Brigadier General Willis Hale, too. Coming into Midway and accepting our operating conditions, they put on an excellent combat performance in completing 
coordination with the Navy and Marine Air Corps. Yes, that's true. We fellows on the ground know that things would not have turned out as well if our Air Forces, Army, Navy, and Marine, hadn't hit the Japs so hard before and after they appeared at Midway. Japanese neared Midway on June 3rd, hoping to launch an all-out knockout blow on that pair of coral atolls shortly after dawn on June 4th. They were roundly defeated during the ensuing three days. Combined forces of the Army, Navy, and Marine Corps dispersed the Japanese with heavy losses. All of them contributed much to smashing what appears to have been a major enemy threat at our vital island outpost, an invasion attempt. You will be prouder than ever to call yourselves Americans after you have heard from Captain Herbert Merrill, 28 years of age, of Arlington, Massachusetts. Captain Richard Blaine, 26, of Miami, Florida. And Captain Gene Buckner, 28, of Hanford, California. First, I shall introduce Captain Merrill, who informed me shortly before we went on the air that he became the father of twins a month ago. Would you like to say hello to Mrs. Merrill? Yes, I would. Hello, Lois. I only wish that you were broadcasting, too, so this wouldn't be a one-way affair. Give my love to the twins and save lots for yourself. That greeting was sent to this marine pilot's wife in faraway Nashua, New Hampshire. Now we have Captain Blaine of Miami, the second flyer. Hello, Mother and Dad. I'm delighted to have this chance to tell you I'm fit as a fiddle and not at all worse for my experience. And here is Captain Buckner, commanding an anti-aircraft battery. He wants to say a few words to his wife and son back in Chicago. Thank you, Owen. Come here, dear. The last snapshots of David are the best yet. Please send along some more. I'm okay, and I will stay that way. And that is a Sega of the Sea. You have just heard Captain Gene Buckner, Captain Richard Blaine, and Captain Herbert Merrill of the United States Marine Corps describe the initial stages of the Battle of Midway. They played a part in the making of history. This was their story. They've been talking to you from the studios of KGMB, Honolulu, Hawaii, USA. We return you now to Mutual. <laughs> 